Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast, your weekly dose of European politics from either side of the Rhine. I'm Dave Keating, a freelance journalist going back and forth between Brussels and Berlin, working for Deutsche Welle. And I'm Tyson Barker. I am an American Europe watcher uh, currently at the Aspen Institute. So we're very lucky to be joined this week by John Worth, a longtime blogger and keen EU watcher. John, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. So we had these comments uh, from Jens Spahn this week, uh, which were actually follow up to, to previous comments. Um, he basically was not happy with the amount of English that's spoken in Berlin. Uh, he doesn't like hearing it in cafes and bars, and he doesn't like that Germans are using it so much. So, I mean, Tyson, who is this guy? Where did he come from? He is a representative from North Rhine-Westphalia. He was the youngest, I think the youngest ever, member of the uh, of the Bundestag when he was elected some 10, uh, over 10 years ago. Yeah, at 22, I believe. Yeah. Exactly. And he's from a region right on the border with the Netherlands, which might even play into his worldview, because I think he probably is familiar with the way politics uh, plays in the Netherlands. So he has become the protege of Wolfgang Schäuble, one of the parties. Uh, immense greases, the the current finance minister and a longtime player in conservative politics here. And he has risen to a role of prominence at 37 because he is so willing to take on a fight. Uh, Schäuble described him as streitlustig. That's the word uh, basically meaning he's ready to brawl. He's a brawler, essentially. And he's taken on a lot of issues, you know. He's taken on uh, originally, he thought he was going to be a health expert. He was overpassed for the ministry in 2013. Um, and now he's taking on a lot of identity questions. Mm. The first big one that he took on, which got him a lot of press, was the issue of immigration, refugees, and integration. And basically what he said was uh, he forced through, first of all, he forced through the CDU party a position against dual passports. And that was something that Merkel actually wanted. She wanted a bigger tent party. He said, no, we need to basically consolidate the cohesion of German society, and you can't serve two masters in the sense. You can't be, yeah, you, you need to choose, pick a side. If you're a German, you got to be a German. Um, he's pushed for quicker deportation of refugees who have committed crimes or who have not been approved. And then, of course, he had this incident recently, which has caused a lot of debate here, mm-hmm. uh, which you referenced earlier. Yeah, this was so it was an interview in Die Zeit where he was complaining about. um, So it was interesting. His first comments were to his hometown newspaper, where I think they were a bit offhand. But he was saying he really doesn't like it when he's in Berlin, where he works as an MP, doesn't live permanently, but works. Uh, He doesn't like it when he's in bars and cafes and hears people speaking English. Well, that sounded a little um, cranky and maybe not cosmopolitan to a lot of people. So I think this was his effort to clarify it. And he actually clarified that it's not the English speakers he's mad with, or not the native English speakers or anyone else. It's the Germans. He's really mad with when he, especially when he hears Germans speaking to each other in English in Berlin. Um, and it's funny, this issue, as long as I've been watching Germany, keeps popping up and you hear it a lot, especially in Berlin. There was this fairly notorious incident uh, a number of years ago now where Guido Westerwelle, the former leader of the FTP, uh, who at the time was foreign minister, a British journalist from the BBC asked him a question in English at a press conference. It was his first uh, press conference as foreign minister. Mm-hmm. 
And he, uh, well, I guess he wanted to put his foot down on that type of thing. So he responded in German. Uh, I won't take questions in English. This is Germany. Das ist Deutschland here. And that became a huge big deal here because that's just not something that Germans have done. Germans don't, Germans aren't like the French. Germans don't have big language pride. They don't connect their language to patriotism in the same way that the French do. But this has been slowly changing this linguistic uh, issue and the fault line for this is certainly here in Berlin which is a very English heavy city but it's not just the language issue it's the entire question of full-throated endorsement of German identity and of mm. course language is one of many signals of that also passport also you know do you know the history of the country and you know he recently said in an interview actually he's out campaigning in Germany's East and he said you know it's not that we expect immigrants to know every poem of Schiller and Goethe we just expect them to have a desire to demonstrate some respect for the primary culture of the country um, he's you know he's, he's he's a little bit of a brash politician but he reflects a trend that is occurring not just in Germany but throughout Europe, I think. And one of the trends is he's not willing to wait his turn. Mm -hmm. You know, he has um, had many profiles written about him in German press and English press, and uh, you know, had made has made his high ambitions for higher office quite clear. I mean, this is a guy who probably <laughs> wants to be chancellor. Someday. But wait, this whole let's put this in some perspective here, mm -hmm. right? Yes, he, together with the youth branch of the Christian Democrats, are opposed to dual nationality. But, mm. but the Christian Democrats are not going to be governing alone. It's pretty unlikely, even with the FDP, that you'd have any coalition that would want to restrict um, the dual citizenship rules and the way that Jens Spahn would want it. So this is a tactical play. This is playing to the fears of the people in his district in Nordrhein-Westfalen, who are a bit worried about the sort of multicultural future of the country in some way he can play to them just at the same time as knowing full well he's never going to have to do it actually yeah it's the same as with merkel and the and the and the ear for Allah, the um, um uh, same-sex marriage issue merkel can happily let it happen and look like she gained some some credence with the kind of uh, urban cosmopolitan people while to the cdu base she was the one who voted against and so yeah. she can play it both ways she can say she had no choice and also bear in mind that, that Jens Spahn can sound half interesting in the main because so many German politicians are so tremendously boring. Uh, and so therefore, it's not that necessarily that he's particularly good or particularly persuasive. It's the fact that many of the other people who within the leading characters within the, within the Christian Democrats uh, are, are often unquotable simply because you can't actually determine what actually they stand for when, when, when they speak out. But do you think he's part of a growing trend of more strident German politicians? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I think you... You could maybe include perhaps Lindner from the from the Liberals, yeah. the, in, or Gerhard Schick from the Greens. There are many different Schick players. Is, Schick is marginal in the Greens. The Greens went. If the Greens had wanted a more outspoken candidate, as they they could have gone for Harbeck as their leading well, candidate. And the Greens are an interesting case. I mean, this is a little bit of uh, of inside baseball strategy playing. But you know, the Greens are not hitting the levels that they could be given the amount of time that they've been out of power. And one of the reasons people say is because they pick two very moderate candidates, somewhat, I wouldn't say technocratic, but you know, you can feel behind the surface, behind the Merkel era, they're starting to grow a sense we do want politicians who speak, I don't want to say like the British politicians, but not just to technocratic issues, but a little bit to questions of identity. Somebody who can inspire. It, yes, and somebody who can talk to 
a little more populist. But I do think he's ultimately it's an easy win for Jens Spahn, right? He can particularly he can, for his area. for him for but his it, area. Yeah, it, and ultimately the stuff to make now now the kind of the main perceived crisis of the refu- of of the the influx of refugees has died down to a certain extent. Now we get to the stage where you've got to do the really hard work. You've got to do those language lessons. You've got to make sure that you don't have tensions and difficulties in schools. You've got to manage to make sure that the temporary accommodation of refugees is ultimately closed and those people are adequately housed. You, those, that is thankless work that newspapers are not going to write about. Mm. It's much easier, if you're in an election campaign, to make a nice soundbite the way that Jens Spahn did um, and to manage to be the kind of darling of the right of the CDU. One thing that I think is interesting, although this is not a new factor in German politics, the Junge Union, the, the youth branch of the Christian Democrats, has always tended to be a bit more to the right uh, than the main party has been. Mm. You would normally think that, that the younger ones might be a bit more centralist and a bit more liberal, whereas it's traditionally been the case that the younger ones have become more pragmatic over the years um, as, they, as they've then gone through the stages in the party. So let's see. Um, I also think that, that Germany is a place where people are worried about politicians or individuals that can get above their station. Mm-hmm. This is the, yes, this, um, is, this is the... And this is where Jens Spahn might be overdoing it. And this is, this is a European phenomenon. I mean, if you look across Europe right now, we have a lot of leaders under 40 who are really making a play. And what they're saying is, we're not going to wait our turn. Yeah, and these people Michael. are really starting to connect. Now, there could be a backlash to this where people say, whoa, we want more steady hands. But if you look at a place like Austria with Sebastian Kurz, you see a very similar phenomenon. Sebastian Kurz, the uh, center-right, the foreign minister who is leading his party into elections also this fall, actually is kind of cut from the same cloth as Jens Spahn. Uh, very similar positions on immigration and integration, very similar on some social issues, uh, but tend to play this populist... Um, yeah. Copy, uh, copying the Austrian Freedom Party in the same way as Jens Spahn is trying to steal the thunder of the AfD in, um, um, in Germany. Well, and I guess, you know, the, the complaint about English, it, it's, it's kind of a, a light criticism because who is he really criticizing with these comments? He's not criticizing refugees. He's not criticizing migrants. He's criticizing me. And You're, you're talking about the hipster comment. Yes. I mean, so he, his comment was actually that people who speak English in Berlin, Germans who speak English in Berlin are provincial. Well, I didn't understand. They're, they're both provincial and elitist hipsters, which I'm not sure how you can be both of those things at the same time. Well, I mean, basically he's saying, I'm one of you. I mean, yeah. this is a question of, you know, are you an alien in our society? Are you one of us? And this is a typical, I, I consider Ian Spahn a quite sophisticated politician, a nice, interesting mix of populism and a technocrat. I mean, clearly he's deputy finance minister. That's a pretty technocratic post. Um, but at the same time, when he's campaigning, and this is campaign season, and he's really doing it in an interesting way, I would say, he's saying to the Germans out in the countryside, the people over 50, you know, they don't get you. I'm one of you. We are one of you. We will represent you in Berlin, which is becoming increasingly more cosmopolitan and slightly more alien to the German population. Yes. I mean, th- this is one thing, uh, yeah, my two and a half years in Berlin, that's been really surprising, which I didn't know before I moved here, the extent to which this existed. But the 
animosity that so many West Germans feel toward their capital city. Also I mean, East Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah but in, I think in a different way. In a different way. I mean, you know, with, when that, that dates long back from long before there yeah, were well, many English-speaking people coming over, here. A holdover of the Cold War, but the, you know the. The amount of whining I hear from West Germans. Con Conrad Adenauer used to say that uh, Asia began at the Elba, I believe. <laughs> yeah, there was so he also something about the the wrong side of the Rhine. Or yeah. something yeah. Yeah. So I can't remember the exact quote. But I mean, does he? And the substance of his comments, does he have a point? Is it wrong for Germans to be speaking English with each other in Berlin Look, or he, with us? The, the situation is is Germany. Germany's dealings or coming to terms with a multicultural society has been a newer phenomenon than it's been in France or in the UK. Yes. And it's played out in a multifaceted and differing way in different parts of Germany through the last few decades. And Berlin is the current focus of that for a number of different reasons. The tech startup scene that's brought a lot of English-speaking people here. The city that depopulated um, throughout the 1990s after the wall came down and has subsequently been repopulating right? by these elitist hipsters you might, you might argue and also I, drawing the best and the brightest from the countryside from, right, yeah. from around it as well and also that's tied in with it that, that again Britain and France have are used to these debates about the extent to which London draws everything from its hinterland and mm -hmm. Paris yeah, draws yeah. everything from its hinterland exactly. Berlin is more complicated because it does draw something from the hinterland, but it's still proportionate to other German big cities, a relatively poor place. So it's got a bit this kind of double whammy, if you like, that it's still being subsidised, while at the same time it's becoming less, well, you might argue according to less, Jens Bahn, becoming less German. Yeah. There's also the issue that it depends on the neighbourhood, uh, that much of that English speaking is focused on a couple of neighbourhoods only, mm. which means even from for Berliners from some other neighbourhoods, it's a tense and complicated issue. It's bundled up with the issues of gentrification, the issues right. of rising rents, a whole bunch of other, to of other topics. So again, rather than getting to grips with the complicated nature of the matters or, or, or some, of the, some of the issues behind the scenes, it's the cultural one uh, and the linguistic one, which Jens Spahn chooses to, to focus upon. Well, I thought he, one point he made in particular, which intrigued me, was this point that actually it can be a tool of exclusion for Germans not to speak German with people. Uh, and of course, we should point out, this isn't just native English speakers. This is all people who don't speak German when they move here, but all speak English because that's the form of communication between countries. But his argument was actually Germans, by refusing to speak German with people or help them with their German, they are actually keeping those people outside of German culture, outside of German civic participation. And um, it's interesting because there's, a, there's is... a definite truth there. I mean, the truth is, is that we, being three English speakers living in Germany, we all know the experience of cosmopolitan societies that, that draw people from outside and the role that individuals play as essentially soft teachers and the role that they play in integrating people just by speaking to them and in the native language and, and that that is weaker in Germany partially because of the history but partially because Germans frankly like to speak English because yeah. they like to practice and they think it's cosmopolitan makes them more worldly um, that is a, an attribute that Germans really appreciate especially in the capital or in some parts of the capital. But, but, but I, think it's, I think it's important to get the balance right. Now, I'm lucky as an English native speaker. I learned German as a child. I speak fluent German. I did before I came to Berlin. I have no problem nattering away to my old neighbors downstairs. Um, but it's very, very important that you, you find 
positive ways to integrate people. Mm. I've lived in places previously where I didn't speak the language as a result of work being in places where I couldn't communicate and where language can then be used as a way of deliberately excluding outsiders. Right. Um, and so you've got to find some balance there. And I think it's absolutely vital to feel at home in Berlin to ultimately be able to communicate in German. And so that is correct. But ultimately, I want a positive incentive to integrate rather than society saying, unless you speak German, you're, you're going to be kind of kept to one side. Yeah, you know what they're lecturing, you want yeah. some kind of incentive to right. do it. Um, and so the, I think that you, you've got to find some way there. The language has got to be important, but you've got to find positive incentives to integrate rather than ways of excluding people through language. It's interesting because this is something I've heard from a lot of people who moved to the Netherlands in particular, that Dutch is often used. The, the Dutch people's refusal to speak Dutch with people, even when they're learning, is actually a tool of exclusion. Because you, you know, as a visitor, you could be there and Dutch people can be super friendly. But when you move there and you live there, it's very hard to actually become Dutch, yeah. become a member of the society. And I think that's true in Germany as well, in a way that it's not as true in France. I think you can kind of become French in a way that you can't become German. Yeah, I, that's also my, my experience I was talking about moment was essentially in, in Denmark, where there was also a, there was also language plays a very complicated role in terms of integration and, and identity. Uh, and times when I would just be told, okay, we've got to Danish new, like, we're just going to talk Danish now. Okay, right, now that shuts you out <laughs> of the conversation. Well, thank you very much. For that. Um, uh, you would not get that, you would not get that in Germany. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that I also find that it's only right in the end that that takes some effort. I'm, I'm, I'm personally very interested in the, ex the extent to which the, this great systems of clubs and societies in, in Germany actually is a way into understanding Germany. Um, and so that's been my way of personally of meeting people outside of my kind of international political circle and get an, and an understanding of a completely different Berlin. And it takes some effort to do that and it requires a different level of, of, of German speaking. Uh, but it's a tremendously rewarding experience when you kind of get over that, get over that hurdle. Um, so um, so overall though, I, th I think Berlin remains okay in terms of it in terms of the way that it deals with I those mean, issues and probably you, better than the rest of germany but even talking Sorry. about even talking about berlin a little bit two points i think you raised that are that are interesting to explore one is that people do feel like berlin is taking off while the rest of the country is i wouldn't say stagnant but isn't isn't rocketing the way that they see the capital as taking off and the second is if you look at the local elections here in in berlin last year you look at the map you think berlin liberal left of center uh, SPD mayor actually the map is quite complex it if is, you yeah. look at the east part of the of the city the map is covered in the purple of the Linke the successor to the Communist Party in the AfD essentially yep. with some very small gentrified areas that voted for the Greens and the and the SPD it is a complicated story also here in Berlin yeah um, well, maybe to wrap up the discussion, do we think that the future of German politics lies with the Spans of the world or somebody more in that middle range between Merkel's age group and his age group? I mean, there's there's a big gap between the two and there aren't very many people occupying it. Yeah. If we're just talking about personalities, the only two I can think of are Ursula von der Leyen who is uh, very well liked in capitals, but doesn't tend to have that kind of role to play. And uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister, extremely popular, 
but uh, let's be honest, has been around a, a little is a little long in the tooth. Mm. There are a couple of others in the CDU who are Peter Tauber and um, I lost the name of the other the other one, Volker Kauder, um, who are a little bit more moderate in their the use of their words than the um, than Jens Spahn. Um, bear in mind that. Merkel probably won't run another, for another election four years from now, although we thought that four years ago about this election, so maybe we, we shouldn't eliminate her running for a, a fifth time. But at the moment, it, you can't see beyond the CDU as a kind of dominant party of German politics. So it's the question is, whoever that successor to Merkel will be will end up having the best chance of being the next chancellor. Um, and certainly, um, much as I, I, I disagree with some of his statements, I have to admit that, um, that Jens Spahn is, it would be among the front runners. It would be quite incredible. I guess by that point, he would be 41, but still, you know, in Macron's <laughs> age group, that's, uh, if, well, assuming Macron's still there, uh, that would be quite a future for the Franco-German relationship. Uh, potentially. Um, of course, as well, I, 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 he's never been one, as far as I'm aware, in Japan to be um, particularly drawn on, on Franco-German relations. Um, uh, we would see. I, he ultimately, despite some of these more populist sentiments that he expresses, he's still ultimately a pro-European Christian Democrat who's not very much in favour of reducing the state. He's not a, he's not a neoliberal or libertarian, um, uh, particularly in a European comparison. He's just got a bit more edge to the way that he presents himself than most of the rest of the CDU. So um, in comparison to some others in some other member states of the European Union, I don't think there's probably too much to worry about even still. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thank you all, everybody, for making it all the way to the end. You're great troopers. John, thank you yes. so much for joining us this week. That's super thank interesting. You. Uh, and so, guys, please, if you get a chance, like us on the, uh, review us on the Apple Podcast Rate Store. Rate and review. Rate and review. We get higher and higher up the more you guys do that. And uh, now that we are back in September, everybody's back from their vacations, and we are ready to talk politics hardcore this autumn. So keep listening and we'll see you next time.